either one of these any good? Wow, this is a good movie. It's pretty good. Well, the director from yesterday doesn't think so. It stinks. You sorry. You waste all our film. <laughs> it's so bad. Hey, is this where we sing Old Lang Syne? That time, isn't it? Sending out uh, one year and welcoming in another. Welcome. This is the end of the year special extravaganza, the Screening Room Podcast, and she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And we are from madwolf.com. It's that time of year. Everybody's got those end of the year lists, and uh, we are no different. We've got a list of, well, actually, we're going to dive into our top 10, mm-hmm. but we've got a, a wider list. So um, before we start into the top 10, let's just quickly run down the full list that you can find on our website at madwolf.com where we get a little more detail about all the, the films on the list. But we'll start with a few that kind of bubbling under. We liked, almost made the list, but didn't make it. Uh, Lamb, Beta Test, The Heart of a Fall, Mass, Shiva Baby, and Coda. And that takes us up to the actual top 25. And number 25, we have No Time to Die. Yeah, that was a, you know, it's, it's nice to have some big blockbusters on here because so often, and, and I get it, film critics get put out these lists and people are like, I haven't heard of one movie on that list. Which I know we don't want to get that, you know, movie critic snobbery type of thing, but no, we love no time to die. So that's good. And number 24, the last duel. Yeah. Ridley Scott, he had a good year. I mean, the house of Gucci wasn't as good. It was still entertaining, but boy, the last duel was impressive. It was number 23 of Candyman. Oh, the new Candyman, Nia DaCosta. What a great visionary work to really put the whole Candyman franchise in a new light. Number 22, St. Maud. St. Maud, actually, our favorite horror film of the year. Well, actually, those are the top two. Those are one and two mm-hmm. on our horror list, which you can find, that full list, talking just horror, which we love to do, at madwolf.com. So, yeah, that's a goodie. And 21, we have Spencer. Still expect uh, Kristen Stewart to be nominated for an Oscar. Well-deserved for this. Very good, very good. All right, at number 20, oh, here's a blockbuster. The blockbuster of the year, Spider-Man No Way Home. So much fun. That was such a fun movie. I mean, that's what it just brims with joy. It that does. Movie. Love that. Uh, at 19, Zola. This is a nutty film. That that movie is completely insane, but the performances are amazing. They and really I think are. it's easy to overlook it because the movie is so nutty. It is nutty. At number 18, The Worst Person in the World. This is one a lot of people haven't heard of, but uh, it's led by a great, it's a Norwegian movie led by a tremendous lead performance, Renata Reinsv. I don't know how to pronounce that last name, but she's great. It, it only It's a bit of a character study, only focuses on about a four- to five-year period in this one young woman's life as she's searching for a career and a relationship, and it's, it's just great. Worst person in the world is 18. 17, one of the, th- is the humans, and one of the prevailing themes of this year was fantastic acting ensembles, and here is one. Oh, you're not kidding me. Just top to bottom. And it's a very small cast, and every single performance is just magnificent. And another prevailing theme is impressive filmmaking debuts. And here's one, because this is a, a writer-director, Stephen Karam, and he it, he did the stage play, and he's moving his own stage play to the screen. And, man, what great instincts yeah. for moving a stage work to a theatrical work and, and taking on new layers. Just a fantastic job, The Humans. At 17. And at 16, The Lost Daughter. We're talking about another uh, big screen debut. So Maggie Gyllenhaal, one of the greatest actresses working today. She made her directorial debut, and she adapted the novel. And she has a magnificent cast led by Olivia Coleman. Yeah. And it's just a great film. And Dakota Johnson. Yeah, fantastic. Um, okay, that takes us up to 15. Number 15, we have Come On, Come On. 
Another uh, prevailing theme this year, black, black and, and white, white movies. And this is led by a great performance by Joaquin Phoenix and by a little nine-year-old actor, newcomer named Woody Norman. He is so great. And the, the chemistry between those two is just, uh, just joyous. Yep, yep. Number 14, we have The Green Knight. This one, a lot of people, this polarized some people, and I went into this expecting to hate it, and I loved every minute of it. And it's another one, we're going to talk about a lot of films this year, that looked glorious, and this is one of them. It's it's director David Lowry, always am interested in what he does. Absolutely. And this looks fantastic. And Dev Patel in the lead, and he has never been better. Agreed, totally agree. Number number 13, talk about good looking, Belfast. Another black and white. The cinematography is fantastic. It's Kenneth Branagh, a very semi-autobiographical story of his upbringing, and it's a joyous movie. It features fantastic performances. I expect um, I I'm Jude gonna, Hill. Jude Jude Hill is the really the star of this movie. He's a young boy that is just fantastic, and I think there's a, a chance for a nomination for Jamie Dornan for uh, best supporting actor. And I would be shocked if Catriona Balfi doesn't get nominated for best supporting actor. Absolutely. She's fantastic. So Belfast, great at number 13. Number 12, Passing. Boy, it's another gorgeous black and white movie. Another first time. Rebecca Hall, the actress Rebecca Hall, her directorial debut, she also adapted the novel. It is a magnificent movie from beginning to end. And she had a great year because she also stars in a really effective spooky movie called The Night House. And then she does this. What a great filmmaking debut. Yeah, Passing at number 12. At number 11, just bubbling under the top 10, Pig. Pig. Nicolas Cage being almost... The anti Nicolas Cage because he has gotten such a reputation for being so unhinged in every movie, and this takes the opposite approach, and it's it's just it's a fantastic performance in a really effective movie about well cooking and truffles. Yes, it's another another film about truffles. So that is everything leading up to the top ten. Again, if you want to dive in a little more a little more detail, you can check out the written list on our website at madwolf.com. All right, let's get into the meat. The top 10. This is at number 10 of the year for us. Two men learn to confront a traumatic secret they share involving the savage murder of a schoolmate. It's called Wild Indian. I spoke with an investigator. They are looking into the disappearance of a missing boy from 35 years ago. You're going to be all right. The victim's mother insists that you help Tattle with this. Seems like you know who I am. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? What did he want from you? You're gonna be like the poster boy. Lock up! It's not my fault that we are the descendants of cowards. Shut up! This is the feature debut from writer-director Lyle Mitchell Corbine Jr. And it is an angry movie, and it is so, so well made. It's it's great, great performances throughout, but especially from Michael Grayeyes, longtime character actor Michael Mm -hmm. Grayeyes, who is the lead in this film. There's a flashback sequence on a reservation, and so you've got to match the child performances with the adult performances. They're seamless. They're perfect. There's not a single stereotype in the entire film, and I think that it can't not surprise you. Every place this movie goes, oh, my God, it's such a good movie. Yeah, in the critics group that we belong to, we just got done putting in our nominations as we try to get together with the group and decide on our awards, which will be coming soon. But one of the categories that we vote on, one of my favorites every year, is called 
Best Overlooked Film. And I think this was one that jumped right to the top of the list because you were on this from the beginning. This, and it really, nobody, very few people have even heard of it. No, it got limited release at best. And I think that it, it, it went to streaming services. People slept on it. And that's too bad because it, it was it was the best film we saw at Sundance this year. Mm-hmm. And it's clearly, I mean, it's one of my 10 favorite films of the year easily. Yeah, so I imagine now the best chance is to look it up on streaming because I doubt it's showing in any... Uh, theaters right now, unless it's in a festival or something like that. But definitely, definitely uh, worth checking out. And you know what? Michael Gray Eyes, who knows? Maybe there's some justice. Maybe he can score a nomination. Uh, that would be, that so would be fantastic would because be. sometimes uh, some of those uh, well deserving movies that got overlooked can really get uh, reinvigorated with a, for the audience with uh, some nominations. But we shall see. Number 10 on our list for best films of the year Wild Indian. At number nine, another one that slipped through the cracks for a lot of people. Marcus goes home to his teenage daughter when his wife dies in a tragic train accident. It seems like an accident until a mathematician geek who was also a fellow who was also a fellow who was also a fellow passenger on the train and his two colleagues show up. This is Riders of Justice. Now, here's the film when we did our best of the half year list back in the summer. This was at number one. It was. This was our favorite film of half of the year. And it stays around and makes the uh, final list because it's just such it's it's weird to say in a violent movie like this that it's fun. But it is. It's incredibly fun. It's very, very funny. Uh, Mads Mikkelsen is the lead, and he's always great. But I think what was really fun is to see him in it's. You think it's going to be one of those sort of Liam Neeson style films, but it's actually a comedy. It's not a spoof. It's not a lampoon. It's very action oriented. A lot of people get killed, <laughs> but it's really funny and very character driven with these quirky, weird characters. I mean, it's just a blast. Yeah, it is writer and director Anders Tomas Jensen. Fantastic dialogue. All the peripheral characters, especially these geeks yeah. that show up yeah. around Mads Mikkelsen. Some of the things they say yeah. and and do, they're just so weird and they're so indelible. And you're right. It's all very character driven. It's mainly the things that happen around the lead character because Mads Mikkelsen's character is very stoic, very, very quiet. Interior. And in fact, and in fact yes. you, you summed up this movie really by saying it's an example of how far men will go to avoid going to therapy because he's got issues uh, and he, he won't talk about them. But, boy, he doesn't have any problem dishing out the violence. No, indeed. <laughs> so it's fun, but it's bloody, and it's action, and it's great writing, and just a fantastic time. Really, really encourage you to seek out Riders of Justice. Really think you'll be happy that you did. It's a foreign language film, but as I, as I saw someone comment about it, this, this is not your average American revenge movie. No, it is not. No. Because you brought up, this is not the Liam Neeson special skills type no. of thing. This is a whole other deal, but it is so worthwhile. Writers of Justice at number nine. Another foreign film is sitting at number eight. Kafuku is a stage actor and director happily married to his playwright wife. Then one day, she is gone. This is called Drive My Car. <laughs> This 
This is one you can't see yet unless it happens to be playing in your neighborhood. It's in very limited release right now. It's going to roll out a little wider in the coming weeks. If it comes to your town, you should see it. Yeah, this is one I think has an outside chance of not only, I I think it's a shoe in to be nominated for Best International Film. I think it has a chance at some regular category Oscars as well, including adapted screenplay and uh, and and director and maybe even film. It's it's getting a lot of love on a lot of year end lists like ours, and it's a fascinating movie. It is adapted. The uh, writer and director is Ryusuke Hamaguchi, a uh, very celebrated Japanese filmmaker. And it's amazing to it's a three hour film, uh, so it's an investment. It's a time investment, but it's amazing how he takes a short story. This is adapted from a short story, and turn it into a three hour film that doesn't feel like. There's a lot of lot of filler here. It's a very simple sounding premise. This stage actor, he goes out of town to Hiroshima to uh, put on a, a classic play by Chekhov called uh, Uncle Vanya, and they have to put him up. And the the festival puts him up, and the directors insist on hiring him a chauffeur, which he's not wild about, but he accepts it. And all just the 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 probing of the different personalities and the secrets of not only the the director but the driver. And then the director's wife, and and how they unburden their soul by the end. It's fascinating. the The uh, performances are great. The writing is just uh, just a master class in writing a script and rolling out these different layers of storytelling and these different secrets about the characters and character development. is just it's a master work of of storytelling. And yes, it is a foreign film, and yes, of course, it is subtitled, but it's such a richly detailed story. And I'll be really fascinated to see if it does manage to break through like Parasite did. I don't expect it to win a bunch like Parasite did, but I, I think it's definitely worthy of some consideration for overall awards at the Oscars. But we shall see. But yeah, as Hope said, it's not quite out yet. Hopefully, if it comes to your uh, city, your town, your theaters, you can you can check it out because it's worth it. At number eight on our list of best of the year, it is Drive My Car. At number seven, an ambitious carny with a talent for manipulating people with a few well-chosen words hooks up with a female psychiatrist who is even more dangerous than he is. This is Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley. Well, we've had our share of snake charmers in the past. We deal with them. You don't fool people, Stan. They fool themselves. I've given you a fortune. It's time that you delivered. When does it end? I want to know. <laughs> if you displease the right people, the world closes in on you very, very fast. Well, that's another filmmaker that we're just, whatever he is, yep. whatever he's doing, we're always, in. Always. We're always looking forward to it. And this, and it's funny, you and I have gone back and forth about this, because in a way, this is a very Guillermo del Toro film. There's a lot of magic. It's very dark. But what's lacking, um, as it wears on, is the sort of childlike wonder that mm-hmm. he often brings to his mm-hmm. real phantasmagoric. And, and hope and, yeah. and joy, because yeah. this... This is going to the sordid side of town. It is. And plunging the depths of, of, of noir, because if you didn't know, this is a remake of a 1947 classic noir film that stars Tyrone Power and Joan Blondell, Nightmare Alley. And by the way, if you're interested, you can find a pretty good quality print of it on YouTube. For free. That, that's yeah. for free. That's yeah. how we found it when we saw it a few weeks ago. Uh, but this is a fantastic update. I think Del Toro just makes all the the stakes a little higher. Everything is raised, I think, 
um, in this story of a, a really a, a Greek tragedy, a biblical tragedy, the, the rise and fall of this main character, Stanton Carlyle, played terrifically again by Bradley Cooper, yeah. who one of these days is going to win the Oscar that he deserves because he's great. <laughs> And the movie looks amazing. It does. You know, you start off at a at a sideshow in a carnival, and that footage is all really and the the way he populates that. You've got Willem Dafoe, and I mean, just <sighs> this is another know, great ensemble. Ron Perlman. It is another great un- uh, ensemble. And then he moves into a, a much more luxurious upper end kind of a, a clientele as he takes his mentalist shtick on the road, and it looks beautiful there. These these long and gorgeous, elegant hallways, and that's where we're introduced to. Kate Blanchett, who is just a scene stealer in this movie, <laughs> she, she and her and her cheekbones. And then in the second half, you are introduced to even more seedy characters and weird characters. I mean, the ensemble in this movie is nuts. Yeah, Richard Jenkins is in the second half. Mary Steenburgen, uh, Mary Steenburgen, and uh, Tony Collette we didn't mention, and uh, Rooney Mara and David Strathairn. It's oh, great. Yeah. It's, it's, it's great. another one of the the great ensembles of the year. But yes, it looks fantastic. If you if you haven't seen the original. Yes, you can probably guess where some of it goes, but it's still a fantastic ride, uh, a fantastic journey uh, for the, the the prideful fall of this man and his uh, his rise in this carnival world. Which, if you can imagine what Del Toro can do visually with a carnival, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just amazing. It, re- it, tr- it really is. There's been so many great movies this year, and we've got some more coming up on this list with just outstanding, eye popping cinematography. Yep, and this is one of them. Uh, and it is out in theaters right now. And Nightmare Alley is number seven on our list. Next up at number six, an animated documentary. It tells the extraordinary true story of a man, Amin, on the verge of marriage, which compels him to reveal his hidden past for the first time. It's called Flea. It's a story of folk. It's a now, here is a, an unusual film in that it has absolutely every chance to be nominated for Best Documentary, Best Animated Film, and Best International Film. Yeah, it is, it's an amazing piece of work. And if you wonder, wow, why would they animate? There's very good reason for it. It's director and writer, co-writer and director Jonas Poher Rasmussen. And he's having this conversation with the actual man, Amin, and it uses Amin's actual voice. But there's reasons that Amin still to this day, because of his past, does not want to reveal his identity. Mm-hmm. And a great way to do that is to animate the whole thing. And it's just, you hear about his story and what he's been through and why he's still scared and why he's still anxious. And it brings the whole issue of the refugee crisis, it makes it intimate. You know, we see we're bombarded by these stories about refugees and they're and they're tragic. But so it becomes another piece of news that we scroll past because the stakes very rarely become as palpable as they are here. You're drawn into this man's story and all these specific incidents he went through. Some of them are, are just haunting. And the fact that they're animated, even though it's understandable because he wants to, to uh, conceal his identity, People have a comfort with animation, right? right? Yeah. Because they started seeing it as children. Right. And you're, oh, it's animated. But some of the things that the animation depicts are so unchildlike and so sobering that that clashes. And your mind is like, can't really process it for a second and makes it all the more, all the more resonant leading up to 
the man's life today. And as it said in the synopsis, he's compelled to spill it out and finally speak of this because he's on the verge of marriage. And it just has a wonderful final, final shot. There are a couple times in the movie where it goes to live action. It goes away from animation. And one of those is at the very, very end. It's just beautiful. And you're right. It could be international film. It could be animated film and documentary worthy of all three. And that is number six on our list. It is called Flea, F-L-E-E, Flea. All right, up with the big boys and girls now. This is number five on our favorites of the year. An adaptation of the 1957 musical West Side Story explores forbidden love and the rivalry between the Jets and the Sharks, two teenage street gangs of two different ethnic backgrounds. Spielberg's West Side Story. i never seen you before. I'm a Puerto Rican. Is that okay? Do you want to start World War Three? You keep away from him as long as you're in my house. I'm a grown-up now, Bernardo. I'm going to think for myself. Tony, we need you if we're going to war. Who are you? Friend or foe? We've talked before on this podcast about how I do not like <laughs> what I don't like musicals, and, and I you do love them. You're very yeah. and now the original West Side Story they had it at, a, at a local theater. They had a 70 millimeter yeah. print earlier this year, and we went first to time see you'd it. seen it, right? No, I had oh. seen it before. Okay, my mom liked it. Oh, okay. I saw it on TV as a kid. I didn't want to go see it again. <laughs> I did it because I love you, and, <laughs> and it's a nice movie. But I, I had a hard time. Right, with it. like I mean, and there are a lot of problems. So with you the were original. not looking forward to this at all. I wanted very much not to see it. Right. And right. it was great. It was great. It won me over. And yeah. it looked spectacular. This is another. This is one that we were talking about. The cinematography on this is insane. The production design, the set design, and of course, Steven Spielberg. Uh, he can direct everything. He can, <laughs> he, can. he can direct a musical. The musical numbers of this, right from the beginning, they just leap off the screen. They do. They really do. The choreography is fantastic. The lighting, the shadows, the way Spielberg's camera moves, it's thrilling. It's wonderful. The cast is great. And we got to give a shout-out since we're in Columbus, Ohio. Columbus, Ohio native Mike Feist is one of the standouts here. Yeah, he plays Riff, the leader of the Jets, and he really is amazing. He's great. Um, Ariana DuBose plays Anita. She's getting a lot of awards love. And, of course, the original Anita uh, from the original film, Rita Moreno, is back. And she's got a a new character. She's given a new character. Um, It's one of the tweaks that Spielberg makes and but everything that works really well works really well I, I think just, everything he does every change that he makes pays off I, I think. agree with you I think I think all of the changes that he made are they make this a superior version yeah obviously the big thing is the cultural diversity and accuracy of the cast that's right. number one yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah the, the big thing he changes the context I think of some of the songs some in small ways and then by the end in a pretty big way that was a bold, for me, it was a bold and risky move, but it pays off yep. big. It yep. just makes the whole romance, the whole story, more universal yep. and about more than just this one couple. But it's just fantastic. I was really sad to see that it really pretty much bombed, bombed. at the box office. Um, we talked about, our guesses, a number of reasons for that. This is aimed at a more older audience, maybe not ready to go back, especially now. 
to the theaters, and that is understandable. It is. But uh, hopefully with some nominations that I fully expect this film to get, uh, maybe it'll get more of an audience in the theaters when people feel comfortable. And that's always, uh, sadly, again, a, uh, a big consideration. But, boy, it was great. If it can win over a non-musical fan like you, yep. um, I think that says something because I just loved it. And uh, this was also a good year for musicals, even though we haven't mentioned them in the Heights very good. Tick, tick, boom. And tick, tick, boom. Very good. So another theme this year, musicals. And at number five on our list, Steven Spielberg's West Side Story. And at number four, a documentary about the legendary 1969 Harlem Cultural Festival, which celebrated African-American music and culture and promoted black pride and unity. It's Summer of Soul. What time is it? You will not be able to stay home, brother. not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on Skag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no reruns, brothers. The revolution will be live. another one that we got to see first at Sundance and yeah. it won it oh. won Sundance Film Festival yes and I was so so much looking forward to this film I love this era of music so much yes, and do. it's just paid off Questlove Amir Thompson although also known as Questlove is the director here and it just the story behind it is fascinating because even someone as musically knowledgeable as Questlove, he had never heard of this festival. Right. Not even not not that he hadn't seen the footage. He had never heard of the festival. Right. And then he finds out that this incredible footage has been sitting in a basement for fifty freaking years. Yeah. And he gets into this footage and he says he he nearly wept. And you start seeing it and you understand why. Yeah. My lord, just the musical performances alone. You you cannot believe these haven't been seen. It just runs the gamut of people of, of the uh the stars of the air, from Stevie Wonder to the fifth dimension. You've got Mahala Mahalia Jackson, older, with a young Mavis Staples yeah. duetting. My it's lord. It's crazy. Yeah, you got Nina that, Simone. I mean Nina you just Simone. have everything. Everybody is oh, in this movie. It goes on and on and on. And that's that's great. If it was just that, that's great. Yeah. But the way that Quest Love contextualizes it with the performers that are still alive catches up with them now. In fact, I love the piece where Billy Davis Jr. and Marilyn McCoo from The Fifth Dimension are watching themselves yeah. and tearing up. It is uh, it's, great. It's, and just remembering at the time their feelings. So you catch up with the performers who were there, and then he's able to track down some audience members yeah, who were there. Yeah, that's really the best. That's fantastic. And then and to put it in a social and political context that he does it is just such a monumental achievement and a, just a fantastic piece of work. It, it, it's really hard to imagine anybody not enjoying this film. It is. It really is. Just on an entertainment basis yeah, alone. Yeah. Again, if that was all that it offered, the footage alone is worth it. But it's, it offers more than that. And it's on Hulu right now. Actually, yep. it's been on Hulu, I think, since Hulu. day one. Yeah. And boy, what a great ride. A Summer of Soul or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised at number four. And at number three, a story you may have heard of, a Scottish lord becomes convinced by a trio of witches that he will become the next king of Scotland, and his ambitious wife supports him in his plans of seizing power. This is Joel Cohen's The Tragedy of Macbeth. By the pricking of my thumbs, 
something wicked this way comes. The one Cohen brother flying solo on yeah, this one. Yeah, is this and the first time any of the Cohen brothers have gone solo? As far as I know, it is. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, amazing adaptation, amazing piece of direction. The cast is led by old Denzel Washington oh. and Frances McDormand. And this, you talk about cinematography. I know we just keep bringing it up, but man, this is one that screams for the big screen. I know it's probably going to be hard for a lot of people because it's so convenient to see it on Apple TV, which is, is it there now or no, coming? No, it, it comes out either next week or the following. I think okay. I think January 8th it hits I know. Apple. And we're, I, we know we're lucky, we're blessed, because here in town we have two theaters showing it. And it doesn't, from what I understand, it's not getting a lot of screens in the country, but my God, it looks fantastic. The way he directs this is astounding. It really is because it makes the most of the fact that it is a stage play and it also makes the most of the fact that you're seeing it cinematically. I mean, it's such a marriage of theatricality and and cinema. It's so gorgeous yeah. to watch. Black and white. Black, Black and, and white again. Yeah, you. I was not really not prepared. You saw it first and then when I finally got around to seeing it, it even exceeded my expectations, the way it looks, the way he, like you said, on one hand, these look like the most expensive stage sets ever, but yet they're also somehow a, a movie set. And then the way the actors interact with the camera. With the camera. It's, it's it really hard. It's, it's almost hard to explain. It really is. Uh, but if but you, it's visually quite stunning. It's, it's so stunning. striking. And one of the points that you always want to make on this, it's only an hour and a half. I know. You think, oh, it's Shakespeare. I'm going to be in here for three and a half hours. No. No. I mean, it's a funny idea, too, because I think that Cohen could be nominated for adaptation because he does a remarkable job of adapting the Bard. And also, obviously, we have to mention that Denzel Washington is amazing. Mm -hmm. Frances McDormand is amazing. This is another crazy ensemble. It is. Every single person in this movie. Brendan Gleeson, Stephen Root, and you want you especially want to give credit to Catherine Hunter. The witches. That's the best part for me. And, and it's funny. We talked about this uh, before. She, the witches are the reason Macbeth was always my favorite play from the time I was young. I, I love the witches. I love what they do in this film, and I love her performance physically, as well as the way she uses the voice. I mean, what the way they reconsider the witches in this is just mesmerizing. And also, the ages of Denzel Washington and Frances McDormand mean that this is an older Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. And that comes into play because they give them a different sort of, an obvious um, difference in sensibility. They're coming at their characters and their lines with a different perspective. Yeah, they feel like a very lived-in couple. They feel like people who have been partners for a very long time. And generally speaking, when you see Macbeth, it's about passion, mm -hmm. lustful passion. Mm -hmm. and, and that mirrors the right, the passion for the throne. And in this case, it, it's just different mm -hmm. in, in a really interesting, just sort of deeper way. And because of that, I think it has maybe more instantly recognizable relevance for, let's just say, today's political climate, maybe, and, and leave it at that. Okay. Um, so it's just one of the reasons that this just for such an old classic work, it just crackles with new relevance and new urgency. And the, the job that the Joel Cohen does with this is just amazing. And again, if you possibly, possibly can see it on the big screen, please do. If not, it's coming to Apple TV very soon. The Tragedy of Macbeth, number three.
And at number two, the story of charismatic rancher Phil Burbank inspiring fear and awe in those around him. When his brother brings home a new wife and her son, Phil torments them until he finds himself exposed to the possibility of love. This is The Power of the Dog. A man was made by patience and the odds against him. For what kind of man would I be if I did not help my mother? I did not save her. Sort of a lonesome place out here, Pete. Unless you get in the swing of things. Here's another adaptation. It is writer and director Jane Campion adapting the novel, which you read. I did. Actually, and when I saw the movie, it's so lyrical. It just made me think, I haven't read this book, but I bet it's good. Well, I had not read it either, and it's very unlike me to watch a movie and then go read the book. Usually I'll watch a movie and think to myself, oh, the book is ruined. I'm not, I, the opposite. I, it, as you said, I just, I was very compelled to see what the the bigger story is. And the, the thing about this movie, it is a slow burn. And I've talked to a couple of people who abandoned it partway through. And I think partly that's because you sort of expect it to be a Western, maybe. You expect it there to be very action. It's If you think of it maybe as a mystery, mm-hmm. I think that helps. Okay, These yeah. performances, you know, we've been talking about ensembles, and it's oh. really just four people, but all four of them are so good, yeah, Benedict, especially Cumberbatch. Benedict Cumberbatch is the lead. He's had a great year. And then his brother is Jesse Plemons. His brother's wife is Kirsten Dunst. And then his brother's wife's son is Cody Smith McPhee. And those are the four, really, yeah. the, the power struggle inside this house. And Campion does such a great job. And from what you've told me about the book, such a great job in, in breaking down the book into a streamlined version that obviously you have to leave some things out. But what you keep to, mm-hmm. to keep the essence of, to, to make, uh, of the story to make it so powerful. And she does a great job with that. You're right. It is a, a slow burn. Stay with it. As Campion, also, the way she balances and contrasts the beautiful Montana landscape. This is set in Montana in the 1920s at a ranch. And some of the landscape uh, photography, just great. And how she contrasts that with the intimacy inside the, the family and the power struggle and what one member of that family will do, the lengths they will go to, to save the family is astounding. It's just a, it's a great story. It's another, it's another one that is, is bound to be, I think, nominated for Best Cinematography. It is oh, yeah. just gorgeously and, filled. And another great score. Yes. We haven't mentioned the score. One of the, one of the most impressive performers this year is musician Johnny Greenwood. Because he, he did the score for three great three, movies. He did The Power of the Dog. He did Spencer, which is one of the great things about that movie is the score. Yeah, the score absolutely. is fantastic. Yeah. And he did one more that we're going to talk about next. But anyway, <laughs> that's just one of the uh, the many reasons to, to see this film. But you have the acting, the storytelling, just the very the measured pace, but a very confident pace. This, yeah. this movie knows where it's going, yep. and it knows just when to roll things out at the precisely right time. So pay attention. Exactly. You have, you to, have to pay attention. To pay attention. You, you, you're going to feel like you don't have to because it does move slowly. If you don't pay attention, you will eventually be lost. So right. It will not spoon feed you. No. Uh, but by the end you'll realize what happened, and you'll realize how meaningful that is. And it's just a wonderful piece 
of filmmaking. And number two, The Power of the Dog. And that only leaves room for one more. It's the story of Alana Kane and Gary Valentine growing up, running around, and going through the treacherous navigation of first love in the San Fernando Valley, 1973. Paul Thomas Anderson's Licorice Pizza. But the film is a sad thing for This is faith that brought us together. But she's lived it ten times or more. Our roads took us here. I think it's weird to hang out with Gary and his friends all the time. <laughs> I think it's weird that I hang out with Gary and his 15-year-old friends all the time. I'm not going to forget you. Just like you're not going to forget me. Cross. <laughs> another we're getting getting uh, so repetitious saying this another great ensemble yeah. and two at the lead two brand new performances right. Cooper Hoffman plays Gary the son of Philip Seymour Hoffman and Alana is played by Alana Haim who previously was most well known uh, from Haim she's the singer in that family band band mm-hmm. uh, but she breaks out with a great performance too and these characters you're drawn to them as they're drawn to each other, and then all the craziness that's going on around them is just infectious. That's exactly right. And it's 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 a film that it's set in 1973, but it feels like a 1973 film. So it's not just that he gets the period detail right. It, it has the rambling, wild structure of one of the films from the 70s. But it's very sunny and bright. Like, it's... You feel like everything they're doing is madcap and potentially dangerous, but it's just got this vibrancy about it. You know, every there's so much energy in this movie, and and you do have these two really compelling lead performances, and then surrounding them at every corner are Bradley Cooper. Oh, Bra- hilarious! Bradley Cooper. He's he's the one person in this movie that plays a real person. He's playing film producer who's still active, uh, John Peters, who got his start in film producing in the seventies from being Barbara Streisand's boyfriend. And if you've seen the trailer, they put that out in the trailer. It's a hilarious interaction where he just wants Gary to say the name right. And it's not really a cameo, Bradley Cooper. Slightly bigger than a cameo. But but he's fantastic. As is, in more of a cameo, Sean Penn. Yeah, Sean Penn. uh, Tom Waits is in this. I mean, there's just, you know, John C. Riley is in it. If you blink, you'll miss him. You'll hear him. And he's, by the way, he's painted up to look like Herman Munster. It's just, (laughs) I mean, the movie is nuts. In such a good way, it's so unlike anything I've ever seen, in a way that makes it seem like at least some of these episodes have to have come from real life. Yeah. They're so cringy, they're so awkward, but they're just wonderful, and the way that it comes together, I think, was just was beautiful. Yeah, um, because in a way, Paul Thomas Anderson grew up sort of around the entertainment business. If you didn't know, he's the son of Ernie Anderson, who was very famous here in Ohio, back in the day, because he was known as Goulardi, mm-hmm. a show out of Cleveland. And uh, he took on this persona as Goulardi. And also for a time, his father was the voice of ABC TV. And Paul Thomas Anderson did grow up in the San Fernando Valley. So you can see how a lot of this feels very autobiographical, if not for the exact things that happen, at least for the timestamp, which he gets just perfectly right. Yeah, because, I mean, he's so at home in the 70s, yeah. you know, because his breakout film, of course, Boogie Nights, set in the 70s. And then a few years ago, he did really an underappreciated, I think, in Heron Vice. 
But those two movies were, and 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 this has similarities in that it's kind of you know population on the fringe, right? I mean, they're and you can tell from looking at the leads, they don't look like your typical movie stars, right? But this one is much sunnier, and it's an outright comedy. I mean, I think oh, it's yeah. easily the funniest movie he's ever made. Yeah, and it has uh, Johnny Greenwood also does the score here. That's who we were talking about a right. minute ago. But it also features, as Paul Thomas Anderson movies do. Fantastic soundtrack choices. Really, really great. And that's, by the way, where the title comes from. Yeah. Licorice Pizza is a, a, an album. Yeah, it's kind of a slang term for an album, which I honestly didn't know. No, I had to look it up. And I grew up in the <laughs> 70s. I was not aware of that either, but hey, great. So yeah, this is number one, and it's out in theaters right now. Now, is it coming? I don't think it is coming to any streaming services soon, is it? I have not seen a date for it. Okay, but again... Understand if people don't feel comfortable going back to the theaters. We're partial, obviously, to theaters. That's the way we like to see them. Uh, that's the way it's it's most enjoyable. But, but keep the, an eye out for this one when it streams. Yes, if you're not comfortable yet, understandable. Keep an eye out for this because this was our number one film from 2021. And again, you can get all the breakdowns uh, in a little more detail uh, as well as specific reviews of all the films we talked about here today. You can always find those on our main website, which is madwolf.com. And that uh, includes, we'll give a shout-out to all of our Mad Wolf pack and all of our other writers that help us out, and that is Brandon Thomas and Captain McAlpine and Rachel Willis and Matt Wiener. And Christy Robb and also the Schlocketeer who did not join us this week right. but usually does Daniel Baldwin. Thank you to all of you for your massive contributions to yeah, Mad Wolf could, every year. Couldn't have done it without you. And uh, thank you so much for, for listening all, all this year and hopefully into next year. And uh, interacting, if you have any thoughts about things that you saw this year that you like, that you didn't like, that we missed somehow, that didn't put your favorite on the list, we always love to keep that conversation going. Easy to do it. You can find us on Twitter. We're at Mad Wolf. That's M-A-D-D-W-O-L-F. And also on Facebook and Instagram, it's Mad Wolf Columbus. And we did give a quick mention earlier to our top 10 horror movies of the year that we picked our list. And we've got that. You want to dive into that? Uh, you can do that on our Fright Club podcast, and also you can find that at Fright Club Pod on Twitter. So uh, for you just you horror fans, we're right there with you. We've yes, got indeed. some interesting choices on what we put on the list, and also at least one big one that we left off the <laughs> list. <laughs> There's a tease right there, but that's at the Fright Club podcast. You can also find at MadWolf.com. So a lot going on. Yeah, it was a... It was an interesting year in film with all going on in the world. We, we saw the other theme that we noticed over and over for some reason. Smoking. And smoking. And we didn't call it out until now, but smoking over and over. I think it was not only the time period. Obviously, when you set a film in the 70s, as some of these were, you're going to see a lot more smoking. Yes. But, yeah, every time we turned around, every character was smoking. I know. That was a theme. But, yeah, black and white and musicals and big Fantastic filmmaking debuts and ensembles seem to be. I know that's a lot of themes, but they just kept popping up <laughs> and made it worthwhile. So, again, keep in touch if you can. Have a fantastic new year and a great start to uh, 2022. Let's all hope everything improves in 2022. Man, <laughs> we, how long we've been saying that? Yeah. Uh, maybe next year. Hopefully this is the year. <laughs> but uh, at least we have the joy of the movies, as always. So keep in touch uh, until next week when we're back with a brand new batch as we start a brand new year in film of 2022. She is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And this is the Screening Room Podcast. Happy New Year. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. Okay, everybody, that's a wrap. <laughs>